So when I was in college, my uh, course director used to walk up to folks and say, Brother, Dr. Mister, and that's the way he would greet someone. Uh, Dave Miller is one of the people I've known that I can literally say that, and it applies in every way. We have Brother, Dr. Mister, Dave Miller, who is going to be speaking to you guys. I don't know that, that he is much of a stranger around here. He's come out to the lectureship several times and has been here throughout the course of the weekend, but a little bit about him. He is the executive director for Apologetics Press, uh, which focuses very much on Christian apologetics, helping to defend the faith uh, in, in several different areas uh, of, of apologetics. But he is the author of several books, many of which are out on the, the tables in the bookstore if you want to take a look at some of those. Uh, I won't go through all those titles, but he also frequently conducts seminars that pertain to Christianity, culture wars that we're seeing right now. Some of those are uh, Islam, the Quran, and Christianity, uh, the silencing of God, America's most pressing concern, the end times, and why people suffer and must churches of Christ change. Those are some examples of some of the seminars that he takes part in. Um, but the thing that I love about having... Uh, Dr. Miller out here, especially for you guys. You, know, you guys are being bombarded with so much in, in this day, in some ways more than perhaps people like Brett and I had when we were growing up, uh, that a lot of stuff's being called into question a lot. So it's great to have uh, a place like AP that's, that's putting out material to help you guys be able to learn how to navigate those questions and to strengthen your own faith. And so we're looking forward to this time with uh, Dr. Dave Miller. So, brother, come preach the word. As you look out, really, over the world, the sea of humanity, think of, uh, think of what we've got. You know what? We're approaching 8 billion, 8 billion people. There's about um, 2 billion people, isn't it? 1 billion that are Muslim. So they believe the Quran is the word of God, that Allah is the one true God. And yet when you read the Quran, Allah says and does things that the God of the Bible would not say or do. And then you have about uh, a billion uh, Hindus. They believe in many gods, like, for example, uh, Ganesh. Ganesh is that little pudgy boy that has the head of an elephant. And you'll see him at Hindu weddings, for example. Durga has multiple arms and hands. These are Hindu gods that a billion people believe exist. And there's a, there are thousands of Hindu gods. And then you have Buddhists who have, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's his name, Gautama Buddha that uh, started Buddhism was a Hindu. You've got uh, about uh, a billion uh, Catholics that believe there's a man in Rome that uh, serves in the place of Christ. He is Christ's vicar on earth, and when he speaks ex cathedra from the chair, he's speaking scripture, the word of God. And on and on we could go. Obviously, they can't all be right because they contradict each other. But are any of them right? Maybe all the atheists are right. You know, there's about a billion atheist skeptics. 
agnostics, unbelievers. They, they don't believe in any afterlife or anything beyond uh, this life. How can we know that we're right? That the Bible's the Word of God, that there really is a God, He's the one depicted on the pages of that book, and therefore Christianity is the one and only authentic religion. That seems kind of arrogant, doesn't it? To think we're right about that. Well, it so happens that our minds are created in such a way that we have the ability to think and reason and to be rational. The definition of rational is to draw only conclusions that are warranted by the evidence. So you've got to look at the evidence in order to come to knowledge. So notice, I underline no. This is not, well, I think, you think, I believe, I wish, I hope. No, this is no. You know what the definition of knowledge is for philosophers? To have such certainty about something that you cannot possibly be wrong. Do you know, for example, that you're sitting here this morning? That you're not sitting in the auditorium right now? Well, see, there's things that we can know. And the Bible teaches we can know. Every human being of accountable age and mind can know that God exists. I want to give you a small amount of proof. This is a hard topic because there's a lot more than three. And uh, <clears throat> we don't have the time to spend on it. Here's some of them. The aesthetical argument, the fact that we have within us a faculty that recognizes beauty, for example. Every, everybody differs as to what they think is beautiful, but they all have that capacity. Where'd that come from? Evolution? Mindless rocks and dirt becoming humans? The ontological argument, uh, which we had a lecture at this lectureship two, three years ago, worth looking at. The moral argument, all human beings have moral standards. Do they differ with each other? Oh, absolutely. But everybody, even the most hardened criminal has a value system out of which he or she is operating. But why? Why, why would any humans have a, a facet of their spirit, their psyche, where they make value judgments? If that's right, that's not right. Everybody does. That has to come from something beyond the human themselves. It has to come from a higher power that gave them this faculty, which they then must do it. The conscience is proof of God. Animals don't have a conscience. No bulldog ever felt guilty because he mauled a little baby and killed a child. And nor was he taken to the electric chair for doing so, because he's an animal. But humans are made in the image of God, and we therefore possess a moral feature to our makeup. It has to be educated for you to know what's right and wrong. And then cosmological is the idea that when you look around at the universe and you see the cosmos, you say, where'd this come from? And the best science has come up with science. Well, there was this little ball of matter the size of a period at the end of a sentence. And one day it just exploded. And all of that just gradually spread out and formed the cosmos as we see them. And if you believe that, then you ought to believe in Hansel and Gretel. Because that's irrational. That's irrational. And there's proof that that's not true. Well, I'm not going to spend any time on those, but I believe those are good, good arguments. The teleological argument from the Greek word telos, which means in, purpose, or goal. This is where, whereas the cosmological says, hey, it exists. How did it get here? You've got to get, have an explanation, legitimate. 
but teleological says it exists. And look at it. It shows evidence of design and, and intellect and, and uh, deliberate formation. Does the universe show itself to be orderly, complex, and intricate? You know, even the most atheistic astronomers are constantly in their literature indicating that that's okay. They won't attribute it to God, but they're constantly detailing the wonders of the universe and then acting as if it just came about accidentally. The universe shows evidence of design. Well, then there must have been a designer. Come on, that's logical. If there's design, there has to be a designer. Design does not come about accidentally by mindless mechanistic forces of nature. Well, the nature of the universe is such that this designer must be omnipotent. Think how large the universe is so far as we know. It's beyond our imagination. Okay, how'd that get here? This being must not be physical himself. He does not partake of, of physical matter. Well, no wonder Jesus said in John 4, God is spirit, not a spirit. God is spirit. He's not physical. And therefore, he would have to be eternal, have no beginning, all matter, and by the way, all human spirits all had a beginning, and not God. And he's infinite in all of his attributes. He possesses every one of his characteristics, his attributes, to an infinite degree. He's perfect in love, perfect in wrath. Do you know all of that, the more you think about it, contemplate it, study it, the more you become confident that this is the only rational perspective on this planet. All the others have emanated from the minds of mere human beings, and they are flawed. Does the Bible itself make this argument? It absolutely does. This is where uh, Paul and Silas, was it not, were in this very pagan, you know, Greek-type Roman city. And uh, these people are, are, you know, worshiping these different deities. And so he makes this speech, and I mean, it freaks them out. They, they want to come and worship him. But he says, God, this God that he's referring to here, is the creator. He made everything, heaven, earth, sea, and everything that's in it. And has not left himself without witness. He's not talking about the Bible. That's a witness, a proof of God. There's no other explanation for how that book could come about. He's talking about specifically features of the created order, rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, things that human beings need that were designed because we need them. We were designed in such a way. Why do you have lungs? Because God created an atmosphere that requires you to breathe. Those go together. How did that happen? Well, that, you know, that little slime that came out of that uh, little pool of uh, slime, what, billions of years ago, just decided, oh, there's oxygen. Well, I'll, I'll develop a lung that will breathe that. Yeah, that's real rational. Nope, it was designed that way. And what about Psalm 19? The heavens, meaning the universe, declares. Notice that. Doesn't just kind of hint at it. It shouts it. The glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork day into day, utter speech, night into night. So 24-7, you walk outside, there's evidence of God, even if you don't want to accept it. 
There is no speech or language where their voice, it doesn't matter whether you're in China, speak Chinese or Japan or down in South America, you can look around at the created order and recognize, come to the right conclusion, there is a God. God has given this evidence of himself 24-7 all over the world. I like the Romans chapter 1. What can be known about God has been made plain because God has shown it. His invisible attributes like what? What are we talking about? Well, like his omnipotence, the fact that he's divine, he's deity, not human, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That proves that Adam and Eve were here at the creation of the world. What does evolution say? Well, the Big Bang, millions of years go by, billions, and then the first humans come in. No, not according to the Bible. Because God's, the evidence of God's handiwork ever since he did it, ever since he created, has been perceived. Well, that fits with Genesis because Adam and Eve were created on day six. Notice then, how is this shown to us? By the things that have been made. All right, that's what I want to look at. Here is scriptural authority for preachers to stand in the pulpit and talk about the things that have been made in this universe and on this planet because it points to God. Let me give you some of it, a very small amount. Are the days of Genesis 1 long periods of time? No, they were clearly 20, roughly 24-hour period. Notice that birds were made on day 5, reptiles were made on day 6. If birds and reptiles need each other to survive, then there could not have been long eons of time between them, correct? Therefore, symbiosis proves God. That is where uh, different species depend upon each other. Plants can, can need animals. Animals can need plants. Animals can need each other. Plants need each other. It's incredible. This is all through the created order. Let me give you one example. The Nile croc, Africa's uh, largest crocodilian, primordial brute. They can reach 20 feet in length and weigh up to over 1,600 pounds and they will eat anything. They've been known to take down, you know, hippos, small hippos, zebras, uh, even uh, other crocs. Uh, they are ambush hunters. They will lie and wait until the prey comes by and then they rush out and attack and they will take down anything. In fact, it's, uh, they are vicious man-eaters. Up to 200 people die every year in the jaws of a Nile croc. This little bird is called the Egyptian plover bird, Pluvianus. And uh, here was a uh, World War I British intelligence officer that was kind of an armchair ornithologist. He liked to study birds. Wrote a book back in the 50s called Pirates and Predators, The Piratical and Predatory Habits of Birds. I got a hold of this book and took a look at it, and he talked about going to Khartoum. You know, that's in Egypt. Watched a large crocodile emerge from the river to a sandbank, flop down on its belly, close its eyes, open its jaws. Three pluvianas who had been feeding nearby at once flew to it. One perched on the outer gums and pecked at the teeth, the other two remaining on the ground and inspecting the mouth, occasionally reaching up and pecking the teeth. I could not say what was extracted by the birds, but the whole episode looked as though the crocodile expected and invited the birds. And the birds were quite at home inspecting the inside of the mouth of the crocodile. Well, what they were doing was pecking at the teeth and the gums in order to remove parasites, leeches, bits of food that would call, cause tooth decay. This is one of God's 
dentists in nature. Design, design. I found uh, one of the old uh, quarterly journal of ornithology where this uh, fellow sent in a letter to the editor and he talks about how back in 1876 he and his cousin went to uh, the Nile River and they uh, you know, ensconced themselves before daylight with, with uh, field glasses and they watched and uh, a lot of these crocodiles would come out of the water and then he, he refers to this bird. He, calls, he said the locals call it the crocodile bird. And he said uh, as they sat there, they, uh, the crocodiles came out onto the bank, as we believe they did every day, to bask in the sunlight and sleep. We watched patiently until about noon when two large crocodiles came out of the water onto the bank and apparently they thought were asleep. Several crocodile birds commenced flitting over them, and through our field glasses, we watched one bird saw it deliberately go up to a crocodile that they thought was asleep, but all of a sudden it opened its jaws. In what appeared to be a very short time, probably not more than a minute or two, the crocodile opened its jaws. We saw the crocodile bird go down to the waters. Uh, well, actually, he went. the bird hopped in, and, and the crocodile closed its mouth. Well, free meal. But after a few minutes, it opens its mouth, and the bird comes out, goes down to the water's edge, and since that was so far from him, they couldn't tell whether the bird was vomiting or whether it was drinking water, but pretty soon it came back, went inside, the, went up to the crocodile, opened its mouth again, the bird went inside, closed its mouth again. We saw the same bird enter the crocodile's mouth three times, and on three occasions, uh, run to the water's edge. Well, do you see what's going on here? The plover is getting a meal. This is its nourishment, its food supply. The croc's getting a teeth cleaning. So they're both benefiting from each other. Well, then the crocs and the birds had to have come into existence in close proximity to each other, in time and location. There was not a crocodile convention at some point millions of years ago in which they said, you know, we're having a lot of trouble with our teeth. You think we can convince a, a couple of birds to come into our mouths and peck all of the stuff away? Yeah, that's as rational as evolution. Such sophisticated relationships among diverse creatures proves pre-planning intelligent design by the master designer and creator. Such an arrangement could not have evolved. No crocodile could have gradually decided it was in its best interest to let a bird clean its mouth. It had to have been designed from the beginning of their creation. All right, what about the fact that uh, sea creatures were created by God on day five? And these creatures uh, depend heavily upon each other, uh, so much so that they could not survive without each other. If any period of time went by without them having each other, they could not survive. And literally, the ocean is loaded with this. Symbiotic connections uh, in which the both of these uh, creatures, these species, and in fact, there's multiple that depend upon each other, uh, designed to complement each other. Uh, here are some examples. You saw this movie when you were very young. What was the name of it? Nemo, right? Nemo. The Ocerellus clownfish lives among the... Um, Remember the, the guy in the cartoon? Don't hurt yourself, kid. Remember that? That was a good one. Anemones. They are very territorial. They stay around these anemones and protect them from fish that would otherwise come and eat the anemones. 
its fecal matter actually fertilizes the anemones. Do the anemones need that? Absolutely, they need protection and they need to be fertilized. In the meantime, the anemones' tentacles have stinging capability, but the clownfish are immune from being affected by it. How'd that happen? A special mucus on the clownfish protects it from the stinging tentacles. Do you not see this intricacy, how this all fits together? The anemone's stinging tentacles protect the clownfish from its predators. And meanwhile, the clownfish is able to survive. How'd that happen? How'd that come about? How could they have evolved in order to do that? No wonder then the psalmist said, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures, innumerable, living things, both small and great. They all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. By the way, this is the psalm that refers to Leviathan, Leviathan, an actual fire-breathing sea creature. <clears throat> that really existed, according to Joe. You ever heard of the leaf cutter ant? I mean, see, all of this evolution is ridiculous. How could any creature, first, how does the creature come about, let alone develop these sophisticated cutting devices that protrude from the front of its face? You know, we ought to stand back and not only marvel at God, but, but contemplate his ingenuity, his, um, I would even say sometimes his humor, the way he's having, like, had fun doing this. Unbelievable. Deep in the Amazonian rainforest of Brazil, these leafcutter ants make their nests in underground chambers. They emerge regularly to forage and blaze trails that extend hundreds of feet away from uh, the high. Most tropical plants, by the way, have toxic chemicals. And so these forager ants will use those cutters to cut the leaves from the plant, but they don't swallow because the, the material is toxic. When you watch one of these cut these, it's absolutely incredible. They then take their cargo down into the nest, turn it over to another set of smaller worker ants who clean the leaves and chew them again without swallowing and form them into a kind of a, a pulpy mulch. They then feed the mulch to another species, not of ants. Um, it is an, an organism that the ants cultivate. It's a fungus. And this fungus has the ability to break the toxins down in the leaves and cause them to swell with protein and sugar. That's what the ants can eat. And that's what they have to have in order to survive. The ants need the fungus for food. They'll die without the fungus. The fungus can't live without the ants since they're dependent on the ants to bring the leaves. That's called symbiosis, mutual codependency. Could not have evolved. There's no time. They've got to function together from the beginning. Now, it gets even more interesting. This fungus only grows on the planet in the underground chambers of the leafcutter ants' nest, like they were designed to go together. Leafcutter ants are sensitive enough to adapt to the fungi's reaction to different plant material. How's that communication going on? They don't know. This is too deep, complex, and sophisticated. But they figured out 
Sometimes when they bring these leaves in, there's a, a negative reaction. So the, the ants adjust and they won't bring that leaf anymore. Apparently detecting chemical signals from the fungus. If a particular type of leaf is toxic to the fungus, then they won't bring that in. The fungus garden that the ants cultivate has a predator. See, this, the more you peel these layers off, the more complex uh, God's creation is. This predator is an aggressive mold. When the ants are removed from the nest, the mold devastates the fungus. That's the end of it. The fungus need the ants to protect them from the mold. Entomologists have discovered that the ants, especially the ones that tend the fungus, you know, how would an ant kill a mold? You know, eat it? They have on them the ants that are down there tending, not the ones that go out into the forest. These ants have this white, waxy coating on their body. Wouldn't you have liked to have been the entomologist that studied this? They put them under an electron microscope and found out that this white coating are tangled mats of bacteria, another living organism. The same type of bacteria that are used to produce half of our antibiotics. The ants control the mold by using antibiotics. And we thought we were the smart people that figured all this out. The ants are therefore wearing portable antimicrobials. We've been using antibiotics, what, 50, 60 years, max? But these creatures created by God have been using them for 6,000 years. Okay, so you look at that and you want to tell me this all just came about accidentally, chance over millions of years? I don't think that's rational. There's wonder in all of this that shows a divine mind. No wonder the, the Solomon said, go to the ant, consider her ways, be wise, which having no captain, overseer, ruler, provides her supplies in the summer, gathers her food in the harvest. He's trying to suggest to us, man, there's such sophistication, wisdom, and complexity in the created order. You ought to stop and look at it. Because they all scream God. God exists. Evolution is false. It does not account for what we see in the, in the uh, the environment around us. How about this one? If you're squeamish, close your eyes for the next few minutes. Everybody likes the cockroach, right? The American cockroach is six times larger than the emerald wasp, Ampulex compressor. Beautiful wasp, didn't you? But look at this relationship, this symbiotic interconnection that is that makes both creatures dependent. What these wasps do is they will go to this cockroach and enact a brilliantly strategic sting into the nervous system, which causes a temporary paralysis of the front legs of the cockroach. The cockroach is unharmed. The wasp is not trying to kill the cockroach. Obviously, the wasp went to a school to learn exactly where to inject the stinger. Okay. 
Okay, the cockroach becomes rather docile, can't get away. This uh, stillness allows the uh, wasp to enact a second sting, this one very carefully placed in the brain ganglia of the cockroach. That allows um, um, the, the roach to become uh, very passive like a zombie, no attempt to escape, its breathing slows. You would think, oh man, this, this creature's dying. No, he's not. As a result of this sting, the roach will groom itself, become sluggish, fail to show normal escape responses. The wasp then takes the cockroach by its antenna and like a leash, leads it to the wasp's burrow. He's not, he's not only not trying to get away, he's walking. His feet are walking. He's helping. Now, how, how did that relationship come about? <laughs> All right, so once he gets him to the burrow, here is a, a simulated burrow, glass jar. He places the cockroach inside, lays a white egg about two millimeters long on the roach's abdomen. He then begins to barricade the cockroach with debris, not so that he won't, won't escape. He's not interested in escaping. That's to keep predators from going and t taking their cockroach away. The entire time, reflex disabled, the stung roach is calm, complacent, and what's happening is the wasp egg is growing. For about three days, when the hatched larva then drills a hole into the leg of the cockroach to, re to retrieve nutrition from the blood of the roach for about four to five days, it's all carefully calibrated, then the larva burrow into the abdomen of the cockroach, crawl inside, and over a period of eight days consume the roach's internal organs in an order that guarantees that the roach will stay alive at least until the larva enter the pupil stage and form a cocoon inside the roach's body. Six weeks from the first sting, a new adult wasp emerges from the hollowed out dead roach. Who thought that up? <laughs> and then how, how could mindless evolution make it happen? There's too much sophistication here. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 19, you can know there's a God by the things that are made. You know what the problem is? People aren't looking at the things that God has made. We wouldn't have all this unbelief and skepticism in our society. Absolutely astounding. Wasp venom is carefully calibrated to shut down signals carried by a key neurotransmitter brain chemical called dopamine. The wasp delivers the sting with the precision of microscopic brain surgery. You do know that there are um, medical schools that are devoted to teaching wasps how to deliver stings into the brain ganglia of cockroach. How many years do brain surgeons have to go to school? Human beings. This remarkable skill did not evolve. It was not learned. It was obviously hardwired into each one of these creatures by God himself. Natural born neurosurgeons. The offspring of the wasp literally depend on the perfect execution of the mother sting. What if she's not real you know, careful and so she delivers too much venom? Well, then the cockroach is going to die. Well, what if she doesn't give the, uh, the cockroach enough venom? 
well, then the roach is going to escape. It's got to be just right. Just right. Millions of years of trial and error cannot be the source of this relationship. Failure of any one step in this complex process would prevent reproduction and terminate the species. So these two creatures were created by the Creator to function precisely as they do. Evolution is a lame explanation. Created by the Creator to function precisely as they do. That's proof of God. No wonder the psalmist said, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. And by the way, the earth is full of this. I'm telling you, it's full of it. They haven't even discovered all of it. You know, imagine if you decide, okay, I'm going to spend the rest of my life going out into the Amazonian rainforest and studying one particular species, say, of ants. It would take you your whole lifetime probably to even begin to grasp the complexity and look at all of the millions and billions of other species all over the planet that have their own intricacies. Listen, the only way all that stuff could come about is from an omnipotent, eternal mind that is so far beyond, though we're created in his image to think and so forth, we are so far beneath God that it's unfathomable. An infinite being. I've looked at the scientific magazines to see what, what do the evolutionists say about this? And it reminds me of the politicians these days when you turn on the television and listen to them explaining things. You know, gobbledygook that uh, you scratch your head and say, that's a bunch of bunk. Do they not, are they not listening to themselves and how ridiculous that sounds? Well, over a period of millions of years, these two organisms co-evolved a mutual dependency. You know, I believe most American children sit in a class, listen to that, go, hmm, okay, and walk out of the class and go ahead and have fun in life and do what they want. Instead of saying, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? See, error covers itself. It camouflages itself by staying vague and ambiguous. It, it puts out sophisticated terminology, but if you don't look past that, then you're going to be fooled because if you press them and say, wait, wait, wait a minute, get, get more specific and, and explain that to me, then you'll start seeing their case unravel. Both of these organisms needed each other from the beginning of their existence. Right? They each depend upon each other. So what are you talking about evolved a mutual codependency? They're obviously codependent. But that dependency could not have come about uh, over a long period of time. How did the ant or the wasp gain nourishment before becoming dependent on each other? I'm telling you, they can't answer these questions. Where did the first wasp come from? If not from inside the body, I said aphid here because there's aphid, the same thing happens there. There's a, a black wasp that uh, burrows into the aphid. See, this kind of thing's going on all around us, all over the all over the world. Each of these organisms possess. Look at this statement. Each of these organisms possess concise design variables that prove the inability of gradual mutation and natural selection to be effectual as causative agents. So when you, you're sitting in a public school and they're talking about um, gradual mutation and natural selection, there is some natural selection going on and has gone on over the last 6,000 years. Uh, and there is uh, genetic mutation that goes on. 
And by the way, in our in R and R, Reason of Revelation, our flagship publication uh, for October. If you don't have it or have access to it, go online. You can read it free. We have uh, one of our scientists whose PhD is in biochemistry from Vanderbilt discussing COVID. Is the virus COVID proof that evolution occurs? Absolutely not. No new genetic material generated. Do you know that there are viruses all over the planet? So many they haven't counted them all yet. Some, there's an organization that keeps up with it. And you know the vast majority of those are not only not harmful, they're absolutely necessary to the created order. They haven't even figured that out. We focused in on you know, AIDS and COVID and four or five uh, uh, flu, uh, the flu virus. They're like all viruses are bad. Those are in the minority. Where'd the, where'd the virus come from? It didn't evolve. God created these like he created everything else in the universe to function together. It's so far beyond us that we draw premature, <clears throat> ignorant conclusions, making fools of ourselves as human beings. For example, I went to the Science Magazine 2014 because he had a discussion of this. They call this mutualism or symbiosis. Those are different terms they use to refer to it. Look at this. Surprisingly, little is known about how mutualistic symbiosis evolved and persists. That's a, that's a smooth way to say, you know, we really don't know. Well, of course not, because you've confined yourself to a theory that is in contradiction to that. Yeah, so I don't know how that came up. Given, given evolution, we don't know how that could happen. Duh! It didn't happen by evolution. They're not going to give that up. Uh, look at this article on fungal algal mutualism. Despite their ubiquity, that means there's a lot of it. They realize it's all over the place in the creative world. And importance, yeah, they can't survive without it. We understand little about how mutualistic symbiosis formed between previously three existing organs. See, they've assumed that previously the ant didn't need the wasp and the wasp didn't need the ant. And then gradually they became dependent. That's all an assumption. As Christians, knowing that the Bible's true because it possesses attributes of inspiration that prove its divine origin, we know they didn't have to gradually come about to depend upon each other. God created it that way. Now, I'm telling you, that's the only rational explanation for this kind of thing. Symbiosis, by the way, proves that the days of Genesis 1 were literal days, and symbiosis proves that the grand designer creator actually exists. Here was a fellow, probably an atheist, British uh, knighted by the queen, Sir James Jeans. Man, he, he was a professor at Cambridge and Princeton, earned the gold medal from the Royal Astronomical Society, knighted in 1928. One of the craters on the moon is named after him. So, you know, as far as human wisdom, he's one of the big ones. And yet, look what he says. Some of these fellows in their sober moments will express truth. We discover that the universe shows evidence of a designing or controlling power that has something in common with our own individual minds. But doesn't that sound like Genesis 1, 26, 27? Humans created by God in his image. There's a connection and we can see the connection, but no, no reference to God. Can't you say that? 
Not so far as we've discovered emotion, morality, or aesthetic appreciation, you know, like beauty. But the tendency to think in the way which, for want of a better word, we described as mathematical. So we have rational minds, we have the ability to think, and whoever created the universe, the evidence within the universe suggests that whoever did that is that way too. That's an incredible admission. In fact, I don't, I should research and see if he was an evolutionist. But you would think with that kind of insight, you would give that up and go to your Bible and start reading and studying and see who this being is. <clears throat> think of it. These objects, along with billions of others all over the planet, in the realm of nature, they have no sentience, no intelligence, no consciousness, no creative capability. They're complex, intricate, rational, purposive, that is, they have purpose. See, that's teleology. If there's intention, design. Marvelous design demands an all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite God, the God of the Bible. Look at these passages. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. You ought to learn that passage, Psalm 33. See, evolution says, oh, this all came about accidentally over billions of years, but you know. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them. Isn't that what Genesis 1 says? Eight times in Genesis 1. And God said... He spoke the universe into existence for it to function the way it does. That is infinite power and intelligence. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Sun and moon, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heaven of heavens and you waters above the heavens. You know, the created order, though it's not sentient, you know, the, the psalmist is speaking figuratively, but you would think that if anybody praised anybody, it would be the created order because God commanded and brought them into existence. Absolutely astounding. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in the depths, beasts and all cattle, creeping things, flying fowl. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Asking us to believe that all this came about through mindless mechanistic forces of nature over millions and billions of years is like asking us to believe that if we were take, to take a stick of dynamite and toss it into a print shop, step away from it, wait for the ensuing explosion, let the debris settle, and go see what was the result. Oh, a new American dictionary. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's about how rational it is to believe in evolution. Well, no, it took longer. Okay, let's do a billion explosions one after the other. We'll give some time in between. Squirt a little humidity in there or something. It's not going to happen. The human mind is capable of seeing that's not going to happen. This is a ridiculous theory. The smaller and deeper we go in examining God's creation, the more complex, sophisticated, and astounding the discoveries. One would have to be prejudiced and deliberately determined. See, there's the problem. You talk with your friend about some of your beliefs, and they don't want it. They reject it. And you're thinking, well, maybe I'm not making it clear enough. Let me try again. I need to do better, blah, blah, blah. 
Now, the vast majority of the time, that's not the deal. The deal is they have reasons for believing and behaving the way they do, and they don't want you altering that. And you really have to accept that, get used to that. Jesus came to this planet. Now, you would think if anybody could convert the world, it would be God himself in the flesh. How many people listen to him? No wonder then twice the psalmist said, if you say there's no God, you are conducting yourself in a, a mentally foolish way. That, that, that doesn't make sense. It's not rational. Ask the beasts. They'll teach you, the birds of the air. They'll tell you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 37, stand still and consider the wondrous works of the Lord. We can know that God exists. If you're interested in this kind of material, I've put a whole bunch of it, a lot more than what I've showed you, in um, the book, Does God Exist?, which is available through AP. We may even have this now as a PDF. I don't remember. We gradually move our books over and put them on PDF, or you just download it free of charge. Okay, don't have time to show you that, and a lot more. But I hope then, as young people, you will never be swayed by intellectuals and school settings that try to convince you otherwise. Stay sensible in your thinking and rational and don't be motivated by the lusts of the flesh. Young people, do you hear that? Don't be motivated by the lusts of the flesh. Keep your mind controlling your body, not vice versa. Thank you for listening.